I could just reach out and touch the corner of his garment, I could be healed. This is what was in the heart of the woman in Mark chapter five who reached out just to touch Jesus as he passed by. She demanded so little of Jesus and she was completely healed. But the Pharisees demanded sign after sign after sign from Jesus and they only wanted to murder him. He didn't do anything that they demanded of him. This woman demanded so little, just the faith of a mustard seed and she was radically transformed physically healed, I believe forever saved, declared officially by Jesus to be a daughter of God. Mark chapter five, beginning in verse 21, it's found in page 840 in the Bibles and the seats that are with you. This passage teaches us beautiful things about who Jesus is. We see Jesus called by Jairus to go and heal his daughter. We looked at this in our small group curriculum last weekend. And then we skipped down to verse 35 and went to the end of the chapter in our small group curriculum. And a miracle took place in between those two passages that I want us to look at. Because I believe that these two miracles work in conjunction with one another to teach us something about God, to teach us something about Jesus. Jesus is sovereign over all of this and his timing is absolutely perfect. You'll notice something interesting. Mark's gospel is usually the most succinct, devoting the most efficient allocation of words to each miracle. He uses triple the number of words to describe these two miracles as does Matthew and twice the number of words as does Luke. Usually Luke is the more verbose, Mark is the more succinct, but here, Mark uses twice the number of words, as does Luke. Um, we've got a perfect metronome rocking a nice, um, about 115 beats a minute over here in the drum set world. So if we could mute that, that would be great, because otherwise I won't be able to stop making drum beats in my head. <laughs> with the rhythm. So, Mark chapter five, beginning in verse 21. Let's read the text together. Look at this. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that's important, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under the hands of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately, amen, amen. the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself the power had gone out from him, immediately, amen, amen turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? 
And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. That's a good idea when you're talking to God. He already knows the whole truth anyway, okay? He saw you, he knows, so just be honest with God. And he said to her, this is so beautiful, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is exquisitely beautiful. This is exquisitely beautiful. It's important to remember, however, that Jesus is on the clock while this takes place. And Jairus is standing there waiting while this miracle happens. And his daughter dies while this miracle takes place. And Jesus was on his way to heal Jairus' daughter. This is a beautiful celebratory moment for everybody except Jairus. Because while this takes place, Jairus' daughter dies at his house. Have you ever seen God do this before? You've got one person who has a need and it's significant, like this woman who has internal hemorrhaging for 12 years. But then you've got somebody else, and their need is arguably and objectively more significant, a life and death matter. This woman has been able to survive for 12 years with her affliction, but Jairus' daughter apparently is not able to survive the time it takes Jesus to walk to the house. Two people, different levels of need. Jesus loves them both. Have you ever been in Jairus' situation and watch God heal somebody else who has, objectively speaking, a less severe need. Have you ever been in that place where like, your world is falling apart? There's a life and death matter at play in your family, in your household, in your own body? And you're in small group and somebody needs prayer for their toe. And you just don't have it in you to pray for that stupid toe. Like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This is a life or death matter. Have you ever struggled to pray for somebody else where they're at? Okay, can you relate to Jairus a little bit in this text? Like, Jairus' daughter just died. I'm sure he's happy for this woman who's been healed because her affliction is significant and it matters. So what's the deal? Jesus is on the clock and the timer runs out. It's like he runs late. It's like he misses the opportunity, or, or does he create it? It's fascinating. You can't understand this miracle of the healing of the woman in the middle of the text unless you see it through the eyes of Jairus, who's pled for his daughter to be healed, and the miracle that frames this text. So the healing of Jairus' daughter frames the healing of the woman with the internal bleeding. Let's go back and let's look at it piece by piece. Starting off with verse 21, it demands some context here. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side. Okay, the other side of what? What are we talking about? What just took place here? Let's look at the original geographic context for these events. All right, we looked at Jesus healing a man who was possessed by multiple demons. There's the Mediterranean Sea, zooming in on Israel. And in Mark chapter five, verses one through 20, 
We see Jesus cast out a legion of demons, the man set free, proclaims the gospel in the Decapolis. This is the Decapolis. More specifically, this is Gadara. This is roughly where Jesus cast out the legion of demons from the man who was possessed, okay? That's verses one through 20. Now, we zoom out. We get to verse 21. It says in the text that Jesus crossed over to the other side. The other side of what? The other side of the Sea of Galilee. This is the Sea of Galilee. So, between verses 20 and 21, Jesus made this passage and arrived here. This is roughly the location of Capernaum. This is where many of the miracles of the New Testament take place. In fact, Jesus would say of Capernaum, woe to you because of the miracles that were done in Capernaum. It'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it will be for you because you saw miracle after miracle after miracle and you still drove me out. This is Capernaum. This is the geographic context. So that's what it's meant when verse 21 says that Jesus crossed over. He crossed over the Sea of Galilee. Now, look at verses 22 through 24. Let's get to know Jairus real quick. He's a ruler of a synagogue, which means that he's a man of authority, likely adorned in ornate regalia, bearing upon himself the ceremonial significance of his high and esteemed office. Rulers of synagogues didn't run. Rulers of synagogues didn't fall on their knees. Rulers of synagogues didn't beg, much less beg earnestly. So imagine the shock, culturally, from the eyes of the original witness to see the ruler of a synagogue run, fall to his knees, and beg earnestly of Jesus. It was shocking. It was a huge breach of decorum to see this man run and beg and fall down in this humble posture when he held such a lofty office. It was a shocking sight to the original witnesses. Jairus falls at the feet of Jesus and implores Jesus earnestly. Moreover, this is important for understanding this text. Verse 24 says that the crowd thronged about Jesus. This is the English Standard Version's rendering of this word. The original, the original Greek word is soon phlebon, and it, it's 4,918 in your Strong's Concordance, if you're a Bible word nerd like I am. And it conveys this pressing in of a huge amount of foot traffic. Have you ever been to Disney five minutes before the fireworks start <laughs> on Main Street, USA, and you're just shoulder to shoulder with every imaginable bacteria that came through the international airport before, and you're like, God, make my immune system like iron right now. And you're pushing a double stroller, and it's the happiest place on earth. <laughs> Smile. That's what this Greek word means. <laughs> Everybody's pressing in on Jesus. It's a huge crowd. That's important for understanding the significance of the, of the miracle and understanding the intent of the text. Look to verse 25. This woman had been suffering for 12 years. Do you know that it was not until the last few years of the 19th century that anyone was actually healed of a disease? Like we didn't see diseases cured until the latter part of the 19th century. We had no concept of 
of pathologies back then. We didn't even have the field of microbiology. Like the field of microbiology itself wouldn't even come into existence officially until well after even the origin of species was authored. Like until long after the theory of evolution was even developed. And in Darwin's day, we thought that cells were just these little blobs of protoplasm. We didn't know that there were these smart, self-repairing, self-replicating little factories. Like we had no idea how pathologies worked. We had no idea how microbiology worked. We had no idea how diseases were cured. And so nobody was actually cured of a disease until the end of the 19th century. Up until that point, physicians healed people just by following what seemed to work. There was a vague connection between correlation and maybe causation. This worked for this lady, so maybe it'll work for you. And what it came down to was almost just ritual and superstition. Because we didn't have, we didn't have true medicine like we do today. This poor woman suffered from bleeding and this bleeding rendered her ceremonially unclean. Now that carried with it heavy, burdensome social stigma. It meant that she couldn't come in contact with other people. It meant that if she touched somebody else, that other person was rendered ceremonially unclean. So she's isolated, she's ostracized, she's alone. Moreover, if she just touches something, and somebody else touches the thing that she touched, they've gotta to go home, they've gotta change their garments, they've gotta physically wash to become ceremonially clean again. Think about what this does to a person's heart. 12 years of this. It comes from Leviticus 15, verse 27. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. So for 12 years, you better believe that the community knew who she was, knew about her condition, and knew what effect it had on them traditionally, ceremonially. This woman, impressing through the thick crowd, rendered everybody that she touched ceremonially unclean. Do you see the boldness it took in her heart to defy the crowd, defy tradition? Do you see now why she maybe came up from behind? You see now why she maybe had fear and trembling when Jesus called her to come forward? Do you see now that maybe some people were offended that she had the audacity to do this? That there was far more than just a reaching out. There was a breaking through and a defying of the crowd. This woman rendered everybody ceremonially unclean with this daring act. But it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I think God's teaching us something through this text. Consider verse 26. It's fascinating to look at a harmony of the multiple gospels together. Juxtapose the way that Mark describes the event in verse 26 with the way that Luke describes the same event in Luke 8, 43. Mark, in verse 26, writes, she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse. Now, here's Luke 8, verse 43b. It reads, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Do you think Luke is being charitable to his fellow practitioners? It's fascinating to see both of their perspectives and it's necessary, it's important. I believe this is partly why we have four gospels. Do you ever consider that for a moment that one would be enough? But God gave us four, 
and they have these unique perspectives. Luke was not one of the disciples, but he was a historian and compiled testimonies largely around Peter's and built upon some of the other writings and compiled them. So now Mark, being an eyewitness, is able to give his perspective and Luke gives his perspective. And between the two of them, we have a more complete picture. I'm grateful for the harmony that exists among the gospels. Then, verse 27 gives us another interesting perspective when you compare and contrast and combine Mark 5 with Luke 8, okay? In verse 27, Mark writes, she heard the reports about Jesus. Isn't that beautiful, by the way? This poor woman spent all she had, didn't get any better, only got worse, but then Jesus. She was deeply afflicted, but then she heard about Jesus. She heard about Jesus and came up from behind in the crowd and touched his garment. Now, Luke 8, verse 44 reads, she came up behind and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. If this fringe of the garment described in Luke 8, 44 is the garment that I'm thinking of, it's the garment that was prescribed in Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 through 41, a command that was reiterated in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 12. It was said that, those would, that these men would wear these ceremonial tassels, these fringes on the ends of their robes that would be reminders of the law and the commands of God. Here's Numbers 15, 37 through 41. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are, you are, you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. If this is the kind of robe that Jesus is wearing, if Luke 8's description is describing those tassels, that ceremonial robe that Jesus had on, that's what today Orthodox Jews refer to as a tzitzit, then that means that she reached out and touched something that symbolized the law of God and she was healed. That Jesus being a fulfillment of the law brings healing for those whom the law declares unclean. See a picture of the gospel in this. Jesus embodying, fulfilling the Old Testament law. Now there's something else. She felt the need to reach out and touch the corner of his garment. Likewise, in the opening of the text, Jairus asks Jesus specifically to come out and put your hand on my daughter. Both Jairus and this woman believe that physical proximity to Jesus is necessary in order to be healed by him. But that is not always the case in the gospel accounts. There's another example of a biblical miracle that takes place with Jesus' physical proximity being a total non-factor. In Matthew 8, the Roman centurion, likely not even being physically present with Jesus himself, but when seeing this in conjunction with the same testimony in Luke 7, spoke through a delegation of Jewish elders. He had done much to help the synagogue in his area, and so the Jewish elders respected this Gentile. That's a big deal. They go before Jesus and ask him on the centurion's behalf, and the results are fascinating. Here's Matthew 8, verse five. When he had entered Capernaum, same location that we're studying from today. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, 
I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, likely because he knew this would make Jesus ceremonially unclean to come into a Gentile's house. Jesus was willing to go though, isn't that beautiful? But only say the word and my servant will be healed. Don't come to my house, just say the word, Jesus, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. Second time in the text, Jesus ever marveled at anything. And he said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. This centurion was likely raised under pagan teaching, influenced heavily by Hellenistic thought. And he had more sense and more of a grasp of the grace of God and the power of Jesus to heal than all the learned leaders of the synagogue, all the scribes and Pharisees. I haven't seen such faith in all of Israel as I see in this pagan man. He gets it in a way that you experts in the Torah don't. This is the greatest faith that Jesus had encountered. He marveled at the man's faith because he got it in a way that the learned Jews did not. This man knew you don't have to be in Jesus' physical proximity to be healed by Jesus. This guy asked for a New Testament era healing from Jesus while Jesus was physically present on the earth. He asked for Jesus to heal in the same way that we do today. We live in an era in which Jesus has walked upon the earth, been crucified, resurrected again, and then according to Acts 1, ascended into heaven. And this centurion asked for healing the same way that we do, knowing that the physical proximity, the arm's reach of Jesus, reaching out to his garment was not necessary, but he is able to heal even though he's physically distant because he's spiritually present. This centurion got it, and we learned something profound about this. But Jairus and the woman in Mark 5 both were under the conviction that I've got to be physically present. I've got to be within arm's reach of Jesus in order for a miracle to take place. Jesus works within that, but it is not necessary given Matthew 8 and Luke 7. Verses 29 and 30, especially when coupled together, teach us something profound. There's something, there's treasure within the text. We need only dig it up. Look at verse 29. The flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Did you notice that there's no external indicators that this miracle took place? She felt it within her body that she had been healed. And so the whole thing is just taken in good faith. We believe that she's speaking the truth. It's entirely plausible and even likely then that some people who were sick of having to avoid her and walking the opposite side of the street of her as she approached and getting annoyed every time they touched a door handle that she had touched, oh great, there goes the rest of my afternoon, I've gotta go start all over again ceremonially, that they didn't believe her when she claimed to be healed because there were no external indicators. Her issues were internal and thus so was her healing. So we don't see it on the outside. There may have been people who didn't believe her Can anybody in this room relate to this woman saying, I know I don't look any different on the outside, but I've come in contact with Jesus and he has healed me on the inside. You can't see it, but I know he's real. I know he's healed me. I can feel it in my soul. He's healed me. Can you relate to this woman? Now, couple that, couple that with verse 30. Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him. I don't know what that means, but I love it. 
<laughs> Perceiving in himself that power had gone out. One verse prior, perceiving in herself that she had been healed. She felt in herself the power of Jesus. And Jesus felt in himself the power go out. They both knew internally. They both knew in themselves that a miracle had taken place. Jesus feels the power flow from without him. And she feels the power of Jesus heal her from within. And the two of them know something that nobody else in the thick crowd of people could possibly perceive because it's personal. It's between the two of them. This is the nature of a relationship with Jesus. Your friends may not get it. They may not get it. They may not know, but Jesus knows. You may know only in your heart and soul, and Jesus knows that you know, but the, the crowd won't get it. It's going to confuse. You're a Christian now? Jesus healed, like God healed you of this? You don't look any different? Jesus knows, and you know, and that's enough. Verses 29 and 30 just fascinate me. It tells us something profound about Jesus and his power. The power is simply there. Reach out to Jesus. The power is just there. Reach out to Jesus. Now, verse 24 gave us a glimpse of the size of the crowd. And verse 31 his disciples ask him, look, you see the crowd of people pressing in on you and you ask, who touched me? Imagine this from the perspective of the crowd. Okay, imagine this from the perspective of somebody who's just in the crowd. Okay, Jesus is just walking through the crowd, he's walking through the crowd, excuse me, 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 excuse me. Who touched me? And the disciples are, everyone. <laughs> it's significant, significant because everyone had touched Jesus, but only one had touched him in faith. Everybody had touched Jesus, but only one of them touched him with faith and was healed. And Jesus knew it, and so did she. You've come to Highlands Community Church. You, I know, have been in the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. Let it not be said of you that you're among the crowd who merely came in contact with Jesus by proximity, but let it be said that you've contacted Jesus in faith and have been healed because of it, have been changed inside because of it. Don't merely come in proximity to the gospel because you'll be culpable unto it when you stand in judgment before God. But come in contact with Jesus in faith and be saved, be saved, be saved by Jesus forevermore in faith, not merely proximity. Everybody had touched Jesus, but Jesus knew that one person had touched him in faith. Jesus is here. Now reach out in faith. Believe in him. Become a Christian. Be saved forevermore and eternally one day healed of every last one of your afflictions. When we look to verses 32 and 33, I believe that this woman's fear and trembling are indicative. They are proof of her healing. They are proof of her healing. And they're also evidence of the tremendous social pressure that's happening here. Like she knows that she's been healed. She knows that she's been healed. 
And I don't know that she fears that she's done something wrong by reaching out and touching Jesus. I think that she's, fear, she's, she's fearful and she's trembling because her whole life she's been by Levitical law an outcast and now she's being called to the forefront. This is like her worst fear confirmed. Standing there in front of everyone exposed having touched everybody. Moreover, think about this. By reaching out and touching Jesus, she made him ceremonial unclean. But that's not possible, is it? I mean, Leviticus 15 says that anything that she touches is ceremonially unclean. So what happens when she touches the tassel, the fringe, symbolizing the law of God, worn by the word of God incarnate, when in uncleanliness, when sin touches the Holy One, when sin reaches out to grace, when uncleanliness reaches out to Jesus, Jesus wins, grace wins, the unclean are made clean. That's what's taking place in this woman's heart. So she's fearful and she's trembling because by Levitical law, those who don't know what's happened will think ill of her. They don't know she's been made clean. She's been made clean by her encounter with, Je with Jesus. Did you see what Jesus called her in verse 34? This is the first time we see this title used in the New Testament. All throughout the New Testament, women are addressed as just woman, 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 woman. And in verse 34, daughter, daughter. Don't miss that. That is a deliberate word choice on Jesus' part, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Consider how Matthew renders it. Matthew chapter nine gives us the same account of the same miracle. Here's Matthew 9, 22. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Do you see the take heart in the Matthew account? He heals her body, calls her daughter, tells her to take heart, encourages her soul. What does this tell you about Jesus' heart toward his children? What does this tell you about Jesus' heart toward you, my fellow unclean sinner, that you might be like me, made clean by the grace of God, not through your own conduct, but by the power of Jesus? daughter. She's a daughter of God. She's a daughter of God. I know that because God called her daughter. <laughs> Jesus looks at her and calls her daughter. This poor woman, like nobody, nobody wanted anything to do with her, but Jesus looks upon her and calls her his daughter. It's a beautiful moment. Everybody's happy for her. It's massive celebration. A miracle has taken place. That's exquisite. But meanwhile, Jairus, you forgot about him, didn't you? He's been here the whole time. Imagine being Jairus. Okay, the beginning of the text, you enlist Jesus, please come lay your hand on my daughter and make her well. And Jesus goes with him. And so you're, you're Jairus, you're leading Jesus through the crowd. Okay, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Where's Jesus? You cannot take your eye off him for a minute. And everybody's celebrating this, perhaps. I mean, it's, it's an awesome moment for her. He looks at her and calls her daughter. It's this touching scene. But meanwhile, Jairus. People come to Jairus with the bad news. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter has died. Imagine what that was like for Jairus. This woman is celebrating, praise God. But Jairus is deeply afflicted by this. Do you remember in John 11, do you remember Jesus deliberately showing up late 
He had news. He had news about Bethany and about Lazarus's, Lazarus's impending death, and he deliberately waits so that he shows up late so that Lazarus is good and dead by the time he gets there. And Mary and Martha both come up to him. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then by Lazarus's tomb, Jesus weeps, knowing that he deliberately tarried so that Lazarus would be there by the time, so that Lazarus would be dead by the time he got there. He's done something similar here. He is working his way through a crowd to help save a girl that is dying. It is a life and death spiritual ambulance situation here. But Jesus stops to look a woman full in the eye, call her daughter, tell her to take heart, tell her her faith has made her well, tell her to go in peace. And now he continues. Those were a costly few minutes for Jairus. Have you ever seen God deliver other people from things while you're suffering from something greater? Do you know what that's like? After my wife and I experienced child loss, we saw other people cry out that their babies would be healed, and they were. We saw other people, some, some of whom had walked in flagrant disobedience before God their whole lives, pray for a miracle and get it. But not our baby, not Aiden. What is that like to ask God to bring a miracle to your life, but he brings it to everybody else first? What's the deal? You could be eaten alive thinking about that. You could eat, get eaten alive saying, yeah, but God, why don't you do for me what you did for them? Why don't you do for me? Why don't you deliver me the way you delivered them? Like Jairus in this text. I'm happy for this woman, but my baby girl is dying, Jesus. Why don't you deliver her the way you delivered her? Two people, different severities of affliction, but Jesus loves them both. Don't, don't torture yourself wondering what it would be like if you had the chance to walk somebody else's path. You won't have that chance. You won't stand before God and be judged based on how you would have done given somebody else's circumstances, giving somebody else's challenges, somebody else's cup to drink. You have been given your own cup by the Lord. You drink it deeply. This is what God has called you to. You let God deal with them where they're at. You trust Jesus where you are. Two people, different severities of affliction. Jesus loves them both, and ultimately Jesus heals them both. God is perfect in his knowledge, sovereign in his timing, excellent in his will, loving in his heart towards you. You do not doubt that for a moment. Sometimes you're the woman who's healed instantly. Sometimes you're like Jairus. But God is at work in both of them together. Do you remember how many years this woman suffered from this affliction? How many years did she suffer? 12. How old was Jairus' daughter? 12. Do you think that's a coincidence or is God sovereign? This means that the same year this woman's affliction came upon her body, her hope was born. How did she come in contact with Jesus, intercepting him en route to heal Jairus' daughter? So the same year that her affliction came upon her, hope was born. Your hope is born. Your hope is on the way. You may not see it now, but even in the midst of your affliction, and even though it takes 12 years, God is good. He is faithful. Jesus is coming. 
Now, do you see a picture of the gospel in this little girl? That at the same time that this woman has this affliction come upon her body, this little girl is born. Why was she born? She was born to die. She was born to die and be resurrected. Does that remind you of anybody? Do you see a picture of the gospel in this healing miracle of Jairus' daughter? All of this is sovereign, and there's far more at play here than the woman and her physical healing. That's beautiful, but it's of eternal significance. There's far more at play here even than Jairus' daughter and her medical issues. There's far more at play here. This is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and by that same power, you too may be healed today, body or soul. Jesus is just as able today to heal you as he was in this text. And just as the Roman centurion knew to be true, you don't have to be in physical proximity to Jesus the way this woman was, the way that Jairus' daughter was, in order to be healed by Jesus. Just like they did in this text, you can call out to Jesus today. Call out to Jesus today. By all means, call out to him for physical healing, but in my heart, more importantly, call out to Jesus for a healing of your soul I see a picture of the gospel in this text. And if you're afflicted, body and soul, you see your need for healing, would you reach out to Jesus? Now, like the woman in this text, that may mean that you've got to defy the crowd. There may be some cultural implications to you giving your life to Jesus. There may be some cultural implications to you reaching out to Jesus, just like there was for this woman there are gonna be people who don't like this idea. And you may be hesitant to reach out to Jesus. Yeah, but people say terrible things about Christians. If I become one of those Christians, I become one of those Jesus people, people are gonna think all the terrible things that the narrative says about Christians about me. All the lies that they say about Christians, they're gonna say about me now. They're gonna say, you're a Christian, so you hate gay people. They're gonna blame me for all the dumb things that other Christians do. I'm gonna be responsible for the stinking crusades now. I'm gonna be blamed for everything that wears the label of Christian, true or untrue. I'm gonna have this stigma tied to me. Everyone's gonna make vast assumptions about my political views the moment that they know about my faith in Jesus. And Christians get run through the ringer in public discourse. Defy the crowd. Reach out to Jesus. Be healed because you're not gonna find healing in anyone else. You're not gonna find life in anyone else. It's only in Jesus. Defy the crowd, push your way through. Defy tradition, defy all of it and reach out to Jesus. Reach out to Jesus and like the woman in this text, be healed forevermore. Right here and now, if you you're already a Christian. You just need to be healed by your Savior. Would you reach out to him? You don't need to be in his physical presence. You're in the presence of his spirit now. Reach out to him and be healed like the Roman centurion. You know it doesn't matter if you touch his robe. His spirit is here and he's present. Would you call it to him for healing? Reach out to Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, if God's drawing upon your heart, you see in this text a picture of what you need in your soul, I want to pray with you. I want to pray on your behalf. And as the Holy Spirit of God draws upon your heart, I want you like this woman to defy the crowd and reach out to Jesus now. Pray with me. Be saved forevermore. Jesus, I need you. I believe that God loved the world so much that he gave 
you to us. If I would believe in you, I would not die, but have everlasting life. I confess that I am a sinner, that I've fallen short of the glory of God. May I be justified freely by your grace, Jesus. I acknowledge that my sin earns me death, hell, separation from you, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Jesus, I believe that you are the way, and so I reach out to you. Jesus, I believe that you are the life, and so I reach out to you. Jesus, I believe that you are the truth, and so I reach out to you as the Spirit of God draws on my heart. I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say, Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. I reach out to you, Jesus. There's nobody else on the throne, Jesus. There's not life in anybody else, Jesus. Nobody else is the King of Kings. Nobody else is the Lord of Lords. Nobody else resurrected from the dead. Nobody else can heal me. You are my healer, Jesus. Save me, save me, heal me, body and soul forevermore. Jesus name would you stand with me as we worship the Lord together some of us for the very first time as Christians